Have you ever heard of vulnerable mission? Being vulnerable might not be everyone's cup of tea, but we have a great panel discussion coming up with a bunch of people who really know their stuff, both the theory and the practical experience of mission. I'm hoping this conversation about vulnerable mission helps us think through some really important issues. Also on the episode, we have another partnership segment. We're going to hear one of our workers recount a long list of really significant prayers that have been answered over the last few months. And we'll catch up with some workers so determined to head back to serving overseas that they're making a two-year plan for it. Plus, we take another look at what life looks like for the Christians in another part of the world. Thank you for joining us. Heart of Mission, the podcast that was to be a conference. Summer conference may be cancelled, but let's continue investing in how God is at work globally. My name is Mark Peterson, and in this five-episode series, we'll explore the question, should we still be sending missionaries? What is the heart of mission that makes this so important? We'll hear from each of the conference speakers as well as CMS gospel workers serving cross-culturally around the world. We have panel discussions, interviews, stories from the field, and much, much more. Listen out for a new episode each Monday, all focusing on God's global mission for a world that knows Jesus. In my role working for CMS, South Australia and Northern Territory, I have the great privilege of spending significant amounts of time with the missionaries or gospel workers, as we call them, who have been sent out from this branch, especially when they're back here in Australia on home assignment. Home assignment happens every three years or so, and it's no holiday, although we do encourage them to rest, catch up with family and friends and debrief about the challenges they face on the field. But they're also here to work. And one thing that has really struck me is that when missionaries are back here on home assignment, they are very much in the public eye. They might visit a dozen or so partner churches. They might give their presentations 30, 40, 50 times to many hundreds of people, including to small groups, thousands of people in some cases. So are missionaries public figures? Well, kind of, yeah. Do they want to be or do they like being public figures? Well, no, not usually. And in some cases, this public aspect of the role is quite challenging. For some people, it comes quite naturally to be the leader at the centre of a ministry. Our churches need leaders whose roles require them to be upfront people. And for many leaders, speaking to crowds and trying to persuade numbers of people to follow Christ and make disciples of Christ, that comes quite naturally and fits neatly. But this stands in contrast with the type of work many of our missionaries have been sent by the church to do. Are missionaries by default at the centre of attention in their settings? Are they meant to do platform ministries like they do when they're back here, where they can impact the widest number of people possible through public speaking and leadership and a high-impact ministry? Will a high profile help or hinder This question of whether missionaries have a public leadership role in their ministry is a great example of why we need to think through what we think mission is. What is our missiology or our theology of mission? Now that might sound a bit technical, we've all of a sudden got a bit academic, but when the rubber hits the road, having a well thought out missiology will help us answer some of these questions like this public profile question, but also these kind of questions. How deep an understanding of the local culture is needed to be a missionary to that culture? Could my lack of knowledge of the culture mean that I keep missing the mark and offending people? Should I be trying to help the people I serve to understand the gospel through my culture? What about language? Is it always necessary to spend years learning the local language? Should we be encouraging people to learn English so that, for example, they can access the treasure trove of theological resources that we have in the English language? And what about money? Should we be working out ways to supply money to poor churches so that they can try new things, they can do more, and maybe they can experience a kind of blessing from their overseas brothers and sisters? 
Are missionaries meant to bring critical skills that enable otherwise impossible Christian ministries to happen? What do we have in Australia that the rest of the world needs? Is it our dedication? Maybe it's our Christian maturity. Is it our winsome Aussie sense of humour? These are questions we need to answer honestly and also humbly. Are there blind spots that we take to the mission field with us? Surely our job isn't to impose an Australian model of Christianity on churches in other countries. So what are we there to do? What is our missiology? On the Heart of Mission podcast, we're asking the question, should we still be sending missionaries? Doesn't the local church here have enough mission opportunities, including cross-cultural work in Australia, without having to send workers overseas as well? And doesn't history have examples of missionaries sometimes creating more problems than they solve? In some places, mission has a bad rap. Today's episode of the Heart of Mission podcast seeks to define the kind of mission we want to be doing. And to do that, we also have to define the kind of mission we don't want to be doing. We're going to discuss what we call vulnerable mission, asking questions like, what does it look like to be cross-shaped on the mission field? What are some of the pitfalls of alternative approaches? And are there examples of problems that can occur? How do missionaries and mission agencies ensure that they are truly representing Christ on the field and not some other agenda? And what should be the signs of successful mission? After all, we're not going over there to fail or to do nothing. What are we actually trying to achieve and how do we know if we're getting anywhere? This episode begins with a panel discussion. I love a panel because it's a great way to pool our perspectives and bounce off each other's contributions. Let's get into it. Well, I'd like to welcome our panel for the Vulnerable Mission panel. It's very exciting to have this group of people together. Uh, first of all, I'd like to introduce Dr. David Williams. He is CMS's Development and Training Director and Principal of St. Andrew's Hall in Melbourne. St. Andrew's Hall is CMS's live-in missionary training facility and David and his family were in Kenya for nine years with Crosslinks as well. Great to have you with us, David. Thanks. We have Dee from East Asia, a missionary for 10 years with his young family. Dee has been working in organisational leadership on location. Great to have you with us, Dee. Good to be here. Wim Prins, great to have you with us as well. You've just returned to Australia after 17 years on location, working with Fount of Wisdom in Phnom Penh, uh, involved in translation of numerous resources for Cambodians. Welcome, Wim. Thank you, Mark. Good to be here. And Lee from Nepal returned with your family two years ago after 10 years of serving in various locations within Nepal, working in the health sector, in various hospitals, as well as serving in disaster relief. G'day, Lee. Nice to be able to join you all. I'm very aware that it is a very male-dominated panel. Uh, we, um, we did definitely try to get a better balance and we'll have another panel and that will be a perfect 50-50 balance for the next episode. But it is great to have you guys really looking forward to your thoughts on these things. Now, Wim, can I start with you? What can you tell us about the need in the church 17 years ago when you started in Cambodia and what led you to choose to get involved with translating resources for others in ministry? Well, Cambodia is uh, a gospel-poor uh, gospel Buddhist country, and 17 years ago, um, similar to the present, actually, um, it, the church is fast-growing, but it's also shallow, and it's, it's important to um, train and to mature local church leaders and also members. So initially, I started with uh, discipling, leaders and common members, um, and then it went on to um, training pastors uh, in preaching, and then, as you said, I ended up with Founder Wisdom in the checking and translation business. 
Yeah, I think you, I remember you saying last year in a conversation that a number, because so many of the Cambodian pastors had become Christians um, quite recently, uh, that in some ways the whole question of discipling the leaders was really significant. Many of them would not have benefited from a Sunday school education like many of us would have or a youth group or that kind of thing. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, rural churches and um, sometimes it's a congregation of 20 or 30 and then whoever has been a Christian for three or four years um, will be nominated as pastor. Yeah. Okay, so hence the the value of being involved in sharing and trying to help those leaders to grow in their leadership ability and so forth. Were there times where at times when you felt that you could have had more of an upfront role uh, and what would the implications of that have been if you'd driven more from the front in your um, style? Yes, um, Cambodian churches uh, are often keen to have the missionaries in a leading, in a leadership role, like on the podium, doing preaching, um, leading groups and so on. And uh, that is a temptation but I think it's better to um, work alongside them more in a kind of coaching and mentoring role and uh, make sure that they feel confident enough to um, do things their own way in, in the Cambodian way, uh, but have the missionaries um, as coaches. So a danger is that you accept the invitation to uh, preach as much as you can um, but then they don't learn how to be independent and how to develop their own preaching styles and um, leadership styles. And so if all of a sudden missionaries have to leave a country, then you might leave behind uh, crippled or um, dependent leaders. Okay, you, uh, you mentioned to me recently uh, about a missionary who had come in from overseas and they were planning to be involved in marriage counselling. What was their approach to marriage counselling going to be and, and what were your thoughts? Yes, that was quite a while ago in Siem Reap, but I remember it very vividly. Uh, that was a missionary couple and they had just arrived and they were at a local church where we attended as well. And uh, the guy said... Um, yeah, we're going to start life coaching, we're going to do marriage counseling and financial counseling and so on. And we don't need to learn the language because we can have a translator and we can just um, yeah, teach them, train them, mentor them. And uh, it didn't sound very um, indigenous, not very enculturated. Yeah, and quite likely very hard to make those um, proper connections that you, would, that you would make through understanding the person's context. Yeah. Can we uh, can we move to Lee? Uh, your work in Nepal had you working in hospitals and with other agencies. How did the Nepali people find working with missionaries and mission organisations? I think there's a, a real appreciation of uh, health professionals and and other professionals coming in and supporting the health work. And health work is a very resource intensive uh, trade and working in resource-poor environments, often in, you know, in mission. And, um, and so, I mean, there's a real appreciation for those resources coming in and supporting the communities and healthcare that's needed. But that sets up a real challenge then uh, when, the, I guess, the money and the professional workers are coming in from outside, then that makes a real kind of power swing towards the outside workers and local leadership can feel very threatened by that or undermined by that. And so um, that, set up, that set up a few challenges, I think, uh, within the work on how do we engage with the local leaders to be supportive of them in what they're doing and resourcing them for what they're doing and not overriding them and, their, and undermining their decision-making. So that, that was a challenge that we saw. And what were some of the things that worked well in terms of supporting the local leaders? How did you, how did you approach that? And, um, and can you give us some good examples of how it worked well? Uh, I mean, I think a lot of it really came down to personal relationships, to be honest, and uh, where the, uh, the, the foreign workers and missionaries really had good personal relationships with uh, the local leadership, then things could be worked out. 
but if there wasn't that good relationship set up, then it was a real challenge. And so a lot of it came down to how was that relationship established? What were the, you know, the boundaries and how did, how does communication happen? Um, and a part of that came down to, I guess, how the foreign worker came in, how they expressed themselves. You know, I'm coming with a bunch of money, so you're going to do it my way. Um, that's not going to go real well. And you, you're already, your relationship is starting at a very kind of fractious, um, point. Um, and I mean, I've got to say a lot of the guys that we worked with, I think, uh, did a really good job of, of managing that, but not always. So just let's pick up on that. What Can you think of some examples um, for our listeners of what, what happens when it doesn't work well, um, when, you know, mm. perhaps the agency or the, the organisation says, we, we just need to run this the way we know how to run it? Or can you give us some examples? Yeah, I guess, I mean, there was a, a situation of there being, a, I guess, a financial crunch and there were some really tough decisions being made by our uh, the local manager of the hospital we were working in. And um, uh, a lot of the senior missionaries were away on home assignment. There was just a bunch of us junior uh, guys around. And, and we, you know, we asked questions of the leadership and we tried to sensitively kind of talk through some of the issues and some of the challenges, but without enforcing our ideas or pushing our ideas. Um, but we were also not coming with a lot of money behind us, so I don't think our ideas carried a lot of weight and there was a lot of distress of what was going on. And then when the senior missionaries came back from their home assignment, saw some of the decisions that had been made, they also came with a lot of power, they came with a lot of money, and they overrode a lot of those decisions. And the local manager, I think, really got quite crushed by that, uh, was very undermined, and I think it really set him back. Uh, I think he set him back personally, um, and it was probably a real spiritual uh, challenge for him as well. Now he's now he's doing a lot of great things in the church, so he's he's gone on well. But certainly uh, for his that point in his managing of a hospital, I think that was a real low point. So you get a real tension between the the missionary who believes they've kind of got a a, a good way forward for this, particularly if they have experience or whatever, and they want to they want to try and in a sense persuade. The, the the people the local people um, that this is the way to do it, um, but and that they they see that there's possibly mistakes being made or been been made, and then they try to rectify it. Um, so that that impact um, can can be enduring and lasting, and can shape the dynamic between the missionary and the local leaders. Yeah, it shapes the dynamic of that particular instance, but. It- also has a big impact on the leaders who are involved and their capacity going forward to make decisions and feel empowered and encouraged to make decisions and to grow in their decision-making um, or, or to feel like they just can't do it and pull out entirely of the endeavour that they were passionate about and getting involved in. Perhaps it goes a little bit to the goal of mission altogether, which, you know, and, and do we want to be leaving uh, people, uh, I guess, more equipped or, or less equipped or feeling like they can actually use the gifts that God has given them or they need to keep looking around for someone else who can help them? Absolutely. All right, if we can go to David Williams in Melbourne, joining us in Melbourne from St Andrews Hall. David, I just wonder if you wouldn't mind giving us a definition. Uh, We are looking at the topic of vulnerable mission. What is vulnerable mission? So vulnerable mission is an attempt to uh, develop a theology of mission that is engaging with the issues that Wim and Lee have mentioned for us. Vulnerable mission as a term was developed by a British missiologist called Jim Harries. And at its root, what vulnerable mission is trying to do is address power dynamics um, in mission. Um, And one of Wim's probably earlier colleagues in his time in Cambodia has used the illustration, a woman called Jean Johnson, used the illustration of a playing field. And she says that often in mission, things are set up so that the expatriate missionary is kind of playing soccer downhill and the local Christians, Cambodian Christians or Nepali Christians, are trying to play soccer uphill. And what vulnerable mission is trying to do is to level that playing field and deal with power imbalances in mission. Now, 
theologically, I think where this is coming from, um, if we wanted to develop a theology of this, um, let's start with the cross. So we know that God's means of rescuing humanity is through the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. Um, a message that has to be proclaimed throughout the world and a message that doesn't matter where you go, any culture, anywhere, that message will be ridiculous. It is a weak and foolish message at a supracultural level. And God has entrusted that weak and foolish message to people who are weak and foolish people. In fact, he intentionally puts the message of the gospel into people who are clay jars in 2 Corinthians 4, so that it'll be evident to everyone that the power comes from God and not from us. And vulnerable mission is trying to remember that theological foundation, or uh, we could go to another passage, um, Philippians 2, and the Lord Jesus is self-emptying his kenosis. He empties himself on the cross, and in Philippians that is a model for every Christian to follow in their discipleship. We're called to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. So what Vulnerable Mission is doing is trying to deal with power and power imbalances in mission and to observe that particularly for Western missionaries, we typically come with a lot of power and we need to intentionally try and give away power. And Wim and Lee have touched on perhaps two of the key issues that Really, when, when you get into the practical application of this, um, what this actually looks like um, in Wim's example is around language. So if I choose to operate in mission in the preferred language of my hearers, not in English, what am I doing? Well, I'm giving the power to them. I'm the one who's speaking like a two-year-old or a five-year-old or a 10-year-old, depending on how long I've been <laughs> being a missionary. Um, whereas if you work through in English, you retain, I retain all the, all the power. That's my um, comfortable language. And then in Lee's example, um, another principle of vulnerable mission is around as far as possible, trying to use local resources and local expertise and not bring in um, power and money. And then, of course, that temptation, Lee's superb story about you know, the people who bring the money control the agenda. They control the spending and all of those things. And I think a third principle of vulnerable mission is around just proximity of lifestyle. So living close to and alongside those that we're serving. CMS doesn't believe in fly-in, fly-out mission. There you go. That's a little potted summary of vulnerable mission. That's extremely helpful. Thank you. Now, you're involved, David, in the training of and preparing of missionaries for service. And and that's what St Andrew's Hall is all about. And I wonder if you could just tell us, um, what is it like for people who present for mission, uh, who even have been approved for mission? How, how easily do they adjust to this kind of principle? Um, is it something that comes naturally? Are there processes that people have to go through to, I guess, to scrutinise their own motivations? Yeah, I think um, I teach on this at St Andrew's Hall and I think it is unsettling and sometimes destabilising for people. Um, I think because uh, CMS has a clear missiology and a careful selection process that usually people are pretty aware of what we're asking them to do, um, but, you know, if you were to, I haven't actually experienced this, but if someone was to rock up at St. Andrew's Hall and say, I'm going to this country to deliver this program, then the vulnerable mission is undermining and critiquing that kind of whole approach. Mm. And so I think, I think the challenge is to hold on to, in one hand, our sense of gospel urgency and gospel priority. We we desperately need to get the good news of Jesus out to every tribe and tongue and nation, keep that sense of gospel urgency at the same time as not beginning with our little man-made solution, whether that's Christianity Explained or the Alpha Course or Purpose Driven Church. You know, our, our little program, frankly, is not going to be the answer. 
And so what we're encouraging people to do at St Andrews Hall, what CMS stands for, is to play the long game of learning culture and language really well and then investing in local relationships to empower the local church. And uh, it's going to be through local Christians and through the local church that we're going to see the explosive, exciting growth of the gospel. I mean, that's the story of what's happened in Nepal. Um, the extraordinary growth of the church in Nepal has been through Nepali Christians. But those Nepali Christians, the, the ones through whom the explosive growth has come, they were trained and equipped and discipled by missionaries. Okay, thank you. Can we go to Dee uh, from East Asia? Can you tell us, Dee, in your East Asian context, how do you go about vulnerable mission? Yeah, I think in our organisation, when uh, the founders set it up 25 years or so ago, they were very mindful of, uh, of the power imbalance. And I think one of the key things for us as an organisation has been to put some of these ideas into clear policies uh, and clear practices and clear values as an organisation so that uh, we don't allow ourselves to, uh, we're less likely to allow ourselves to, to, to fall, off the, fall off the path. So a lot of it is about levelling that soccer field. And I guess there are probably four key things that I can think of that the founders put in uh, our organisation to make sure we operate this way. And one of the key things, the first key thing, is uh, when missionaries come from overseas, uh, they, they cannot do anything except for language and culture study full-time for two years. Um, and that really slows people down uh, and it causes you to um, be in that position of vulnerability, uh, of learning language and knowing language. And then after the first two years, you cannot go and do anything on your own you can just work part-time with an already established uh, program with some other expats and with locals. And you're doing that half-time and the other half-time for, for those two years, you're continuing to study language uh, and, and learn the local culture. Uh, and it, it connected to that is we also we have a clear commitment from people when they come, from missionaries when they come, that they, they're coming with a commitment to be there for at least 10 years so that long-term uh, giving of my life to this place, uh, operating in the local language, um, which, as David said, really does shift the power. Because uh, if I want to speak in English, I can do that pretty well. But if I want to communicate with you in your local language, then that really puts me in a vulnerable position. It makes me look foolish a lot of the time. Uh, but it's very significant. But one of the other things we do, the second thing, is we make sure as an organisation that for every uh, expat that we have with us on the ground, at this point we make sure we have at least one local person working in the organisation for every expat that's there. Historically, we've tried to aim for, two, for a two-to-one ratio for every expat to have two people, um, but as uh, economic standards have increased and incomes have increased. It's been hard for us to keep that up, but we're committed now to having at least one-to-one -one ratio. And that means not just uh, people, um, uh, you know, ticking boxes in the office, uh, actually having local people uh, in leadership in various roles uh, driving the organisation. So that one-to-one -one ratio is very significant for us. Um, and the other, one of the other things, the third thing is... For every new project that we think that we might, might be a good idea to do, um, we will not do it unless there is a local person who is a part of driving it. There'd be an expat involved probably, uh, but there definitely must be a local person driving that organisation. So if a, if a missionary from Australia thinks I've got a great idea for uh, reaching um, the aged people in um, nursing homes, uh, we'll say, great, but we're not going to do it until there's actually a local person who is a part of that with you and ideally someone who's actually it's their idea and they want to see it happen. Uh, and, and then the fourth thing is in everything that we're doing, uh, again, David was talking about this, we're working towards long-term sustainability, uh, setting it up not so it's dependent on the expat missionary but setting it up so that it can last even if the expat missionary is forced to leave or leaves at some point. So they're, they're the, the four main things, the, 
the language study, the one-to-one ratio, uh, having a local person driving the ministry and that long-term sustainability. It's things that level that soccer field, we think. Yeah, that sounds really good. I wonder if you could talk us through the the work of your wife, T, uh, and some of the ways in which these things were at work in the sorting out of and the thinking through what her role would be when when she started some time ago now. Yeah, so my wife, T, uh, she, uh, from, from when she was very young uh, and from when she came to faith, uh, her commitment was to go to the nation that we're now serving in uh, and to work with orphans to let children, those children over there, know that uh, Jesus loved them. Uh, connected with the organisation that we now work with, um, and uh, it was very clear at that point that that just was not going to happen because there were no opportunities in orphanages. So she thought, okay, I'll go, I'll come across. Um, but as it turned out, slowly over time, there were some local people who were connecting with a local orphanage and one of the local ladies said, you know what, I think actually it might be possible to get some expats to come in and help us in doing what we're doing. Um, and so T joined in that and for the best part of uh, six to 11 years or something, the uh, organisation was sending along volunteers, locals and expats uh, along to that. And that's what it was. Uh, just locals going along um, to and expats going along with T to uh, work with some children who were in an orphanage in some pretty awful situations, uh, cleaning them up, playing with them, giving them food, uh, showing them love, and where possible, sharing something of of the love of Jesus. And that was going on for some years. Then there was a local person, and so T, my wife, is a visionary and had great visions for what might be possible in that place to transform that place um, but was not allowed by our organisation to really take any next steps because there was no locals really driving that. Um, as it turned out, uh, one day a local person who was a part of a sort of a separate organisation on the site of the orphanage came to T and said, uh, I see you and what your team is doing. You're kind of different to the other people who come and visit the orphanage here. Um, I, I wonder if we, you and I, might together be able to do something to help a particular group of kids with disabilities in this orphanage who are in a really bad place. Do you think we might be able to do something together? And T, of course, said, uh, well, yes, I think, I, think, um, well, I think I'd like to do that. I just need to get my organisation uh, on board and they're quite slow and conservative with this kind of stuff so let's see how we go uh, and she introduced T introduced um, Hope we'll call her that's not her real name Hope to our organization and that led a process where T and Hope together were able to start a significant project uh, that actually transformed the care for in the end initially 54 children with significant disabilities uh, from pretty awful situation to a much better situation where they have carers who know their names and care for them, uh, able to whisper uh, prayers in their ears and have been able to work towards getting a number of those children adopted into uh, Christian families around the world. That's very helpful. Thank you. I wonder if I can put a question to the whole panel, and that is really to think about uh, what does success look like for Vulnerable Mission? What are we actually trying to achieve? Um, you know, we go on mission to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus and, uh, you know, we would all like to be sending home stories of people coming to Christ and coming to faith, and, and by the grace of God, that happens uh, regularly. But it doesn't always happen, and there's often really, you know, if you're going to be, uh, in a sense, emptying yourself um, like Christ did and following the, the path of the cross, sometimes it's, it, maybe it's not as, as uh, glorious as we expect. Anyone got any thoughts on how, what, how do we measure the success or how do we say when it is being successful? It is a tricky one, I think. Um, in our in our organisation, in folklore, uh, there was a uh, a short term missionary who visited, who worked with us, um, and it was it was before my time. But as I say, it's gone down in the folklore of our organisation, um, and we are very much about and have always been about the long term um, relationships uh, and taking opportunities where they come. Uh, and then we had a particular a group of people who were working in the medical field uh, and developing relationships uh, and many great opportunities with, from, for locals as well as some expats. 
to to share the gospel in that context. And what they were doing was they were um, seeking to provide uh, training and expertise to the medical uh, field in that area that wasn't otherwise available to them. And so they would occasionally, where they could, they would get these expats, uh, experts from other countries usually to come and provide training uh, to the people in this field, people that they wouldn't usually have access to at all. Um, and that what that did was it was a great service to the medical field, um, but it also gave uh, our organisation some great deal of credibility in their eyes, uh, and it gave them many, it gave us the locals and the expats many opportunities for um, mission, for serving in all sorts of ways, and the sharing of the gospel. One of the people they got across, uh, we the organisation had taken him through, you know, we, we're not asking you to share the gospel. In fact, please don't do that because that would probably be unhelpful. Uh, we're asking you to come and do a training session on whatever it was. He came, he did this lecture in a lecture theatre in the medical um, university uh, and he um, famously decided to take the gospel opportunity that he saw there because he had a couple of hundred people standing in front of him from the medical field and, um, and shared the gospel straight down the line um, as a part of his talk. Um, now, uh, it, he was very proud of himself. We're sure he, he, he went away very happy uh, that he had uh, taken the opportunity before him and shared the gospel very, very clearly, um, and, uh, and, and he left. What he left behind, though, was a mess. Uh, their trust was broken, uh, many opportunities lost, and all of those um, relationships that locals had where they were, our, our local staff, where they were able to share the gospel in the context of what they were doing, they were lost for a good number of years. Um, and I think that's the contrast to actually what does good mission look like. Well, it's not necessarily taking every opportunity to uh, share the gospel. It, good mission is um, you were looking for opportunities to share the gospel, but you want to listen to the locals um, and see what they think is, is appropriate at that time because um, actually that's probably going to be for the longer-term benefit of gospel growth, kingdom growth. Mm. So longevity and trust really come through in that. David Williams, you were also going to um, give us some thoughts. I think one one measure, and it's not the only one, but one one measure of, of a kind of end goal of vulnerable mission or any, any mission would be um, mature local churches filled with mature disciples who are serving the Lord Jesus within their local church community, but also using their gifts to serve the Lord Jesus in the wider roles across society, whether that's, you know, what, what, wherever they're working and serving, whatever that looks like. And I recognize that in these kind of context in a more secure location, um, that might be several steps away from where expatriates are working and in other contexts in which CMS works around the world in Central Asia, for example, that might be a goal that we're hoping for in 50 or 75 years. But um, I think we want to hold on to the significance of local churches. Broughton Knox at Moore College love to say that the church doesn't have a mission. The church is the mission. In other words, kind of the ultimate goal of gospel proclamation is that God will gather his people um, and that they will then use their gifts to worship the Lord Jesus and serve him. Um, that's not just within the local congregation, but in wider society. Um, and that empowerment of local believers within local congregations, I think, is fundamental to vulnerable mission. Yes, I was just thinking, if you're going to go into mission that's vulnerable, in a sense you are putting aside the desire for your own personal affirmation by being able to say, uh, this is what I achieved and this is um, here are my uh, the numbers that I've notched up, but rather you are reflecting the fact that you are part of the church, and but you're a part of the church from a different part of the world, and in a sense, your heart is for the church and for what God is doing in the church and through the church in different locations. And in this podcast, we are actually very keen to hear from the gospel workers from the SANT uh, group about what life is like for the Christians in their location, because this really is fundamental to, to our missiology. Lee, you were going to add something to the conversation. Yeah, I just wanted to add, I guess, on to um, what's already been said is 
ideally you've got these you know mature uh, Christians in their local context who are saying look at what God is doing in us and through us and um, this maturity that has developed without reference to the mission and the missionaries because uh, ideally in vulnerable mission we're almost invisible behind the scenes ideally we aren't front and center we're not up the, we're not pushing agendas we're not leading the charge so to speak um, we're behind the scenes encouraging and supporting the local uh, I guess the local leaders the local church and the members to step up in various ways and to grow and so they say look what we've done and God has been at work you know in our community and we're invisible but the challenge of that is, then becomes a hard sell uh, to the local government to get a visa or to the sending uh, country and sending church to support you when you're invisible. Yes, indeed. Um, and we certainly need the Lord sovereignly providing in those areas. Wim Prince, do you want to add to this, um, this question about how do we measure success for vulnerable mission? Yeah, in, in many ways, it's the opposite of the numbers game. And I'm very grateful that CMS is not into the numbers game of maximizing the number of people baptized or finishing a Bible course or anything. What I've seen in Cambodia is that some organizations offer a pair of shoes uh, on completion of a Bible course, <laughs> six sessions or something. That's not what we want. Um, and I did not establish an NGO or my own organization, um, like um, Fount of Wim's Wisdom or something. But I was seconded to an existing organization uh, with a Khmer director and with a book committee in my case, because I was into checking and translation, uh, a book committee of both foreigners and Khmer um, members. And so talk about balancing or leveling the playing field. You can have a relationship, you can have a, balance, a more balanced view if there is a mix of uh, foreigners and local people. Like the Khmer, they might gravitate more towards uh, Christian how-to books and the foreigner might also emphasize um, the, the relevance of um, reference books uh, and uh, yeah, books that help the leaders to mature and establish deep roots. Okay. Uh, well, look, just finally, uh, I wonder if there are any books or other resources that you would recommend on this, David. You've already mentioned Gene Johnson. What are some resources people could look at to think more about vulnerable mission? Gene Johnson's book is called uh, We Are Not the Hero. Um, it's got a beautiful picture of big um, cowboy boots of the American flag on the front cover. Um, and uh, that, that's a, a book from her experience in Cambodia about some of the issues that we're dealing with. Um, and then Jim Harries, H-A-R-R-I-E-S, has published a number of more academic texts on vulnerable mission. Thank you. Any others to add there, Lee? Yeah, um, When Helping Hurts uh, by Corbett and Fickett was another one that I think raised a lot of these type of issues and that we found very helpful to look into. Great. Well, as the Apostle Paul says, you are my letters of recommendation. As he talks to the church, the emphasis on the church itself as being our commendation, the work that we put into people and the way in which the spirit works, often invisibly and yet with, we pray, eternal consequences. Very, very thankful to all of you for joining us for this Vulnerable Mission podcast. Thank you to you, David, to Lee, to Wim and to Dee. Great to have you all. Thank you so much. In each episode of the Heart of Mission podcast, we're going to take a look at mission partnership. CMS missionaries serve in about 40 different countries in the world and across a very wide range of activities on the field. Some of our missionaries' roles involve leadership. Some are more focused on building relationships or completing projects or training and discipling leaders or supporting the work of others, including local church leaders. Through mission partnership, we can be involved in these things, even if we're far away here in Australia. We talk about pray, care, give and go. I think of these as the partnership essentials. In this episode, we focus on pray and we head to Cambodia where Maggie Cruz is working with Hope for Justice. 
In partnership with the authorities, she's involved in the rescue and restoration of girls who have been trafficked or caught up in exploitation, seeking either to get the girls home to safe family or to equip them to live safely as independent young workers in the community. All the girls come with harrowing stories and Maggie's hope and prayer is to build a staff team who can reach out to these girls with God's love, the message of a fresh start and the hope of a new future, both in this life and in the one to come. Her work is brutal but crucial. I asked Maggie if she could tell us of a significant prayer that had been answered recently. My subject, uh, please relate the story of a significant answer to prayer. And I'm like, oh, I get one, one significant answer to prayer. Oh, sorry, I just did a brainstorm and I can't write fast enough. These are in no particular order. It's the middle of COVID. And we meant to be collaborating with the boys in blue, Reed Kaki, uh, but they're really scared of catching COVID and won't do rescues and bring girls into our centre. And yet in the middle of all of that, God has brought us over 30 new girls who've been trafficked and exploited and have received care and love and many of them heard about Jesus. When our team were exhausted from searching in our local area for a new centre site, God kept a vision, previously used school that would be perfect. And I kept on thinking about this. Exasperated, finally, my senior team agreed that we needed to widen out our search area. And the very first site that we found was a school that closed down at the beginning of the pandemic, empty, very dusty and perfect, and waiting for us to come along 18 months later. Thank you, Lord. We're now renovating that site and hope to move in in February. It's not really acceptable to advertise openly for Christian staff in, uh, in an NGO here, but we pray. This time last year, a wonderful Christian counsellor joined our team. Then we started looking for a director of programs, albeit 10 months of praying and searching and interviewing, but our third round of recruitment contained not one but two committed Christians. We had a choice. The person we chose just started on the 3rd of January. Pray for him as he starts with us. We discreetly put Bibles, children's picture Bibles, other Christian literature on the bookshelves in our centre and praise God, it keeps growing legs and going home with the girls in their bags, tucked away and we pray will be read and shared also with family, friends, siblings. Recently, we had a particularly avid reader who came up to us and um, and said, uh, what, what, literally, what do I, what do I have to do to be saved? I wanna to get to know this Jesus. Our uh, counsellor that we hired was able to talk her through that and she made a commitment to Christ. God has been so faithful in taking our often wobbly, irregular, passionate, inarticulate, stumbling prayers, whatever we pray, and somehow transforming them to achieve his purposes. Never discount the power of prayer, your prayers, and through our work, God is doing amazing things. What a great God we serve. Well, we could have asked any number of our missionaries to give us stories of significant answered prayer because God truly is at work in the details. But isn't Maggie's account incredible and also her reflections on prayer? I personally find it so helpful to hear about these answers to prayer, whether you're praying for your own circumstances, for the ministry of your church, or for the needs on the mission field. It is so encouraging to know that those prayers are heard and responded to. So mission partnership, in some ways, yes, we make a decision to partner with a missionary. But probably even more importantly, God has invited us in to partner with him in his work. Our prayers are a tangible investment of our time in the things that he is doing. Doesn't mean we always know exactly what to ask, but he teaches us that too. In fact, through our praying, he involves us in this ministry to exploited girls in Cambodia by using that time that we spend on our knees to bring about the good things he has in mind to do. Could God just go and do those good things without our prayers? Well, I take it that he could, but the Bible talks about him answering our requests. In John 14, verse 14, Jesus says, You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. 
It's his invitation for us to be part of his work. So if you would like to get praying for missionaries and not only find out prayer needs, but also hear about prayer answers, you may wish to subscribe to some prayer update emails. We call them partnership updates. All our workers do them monthly. To get started, search for CMS S-A-N-T and click on Partner with Missionaries. Pick a missionary and sign up. CMS also has an annual prayer diary with short prayer points that can be sent to you monthly to enable you to pray your way around those 40 or so countries each month. You can sign up for the prayer diary and those prayer points on that same Partner with Missionaries page too. Scroll to the very bottom and click the pray button. The link will be in the show notes. Many people around our churches have been following and praying for D and T, who have been serving for over 10 years in East Asia. We heard from D in the panel discussion a little earlier. I caught up with both of them recently. D and T, great to be able to sit down with you for a little while. You've been in Adelaide now for two and a half years, which is a bit longer than the normal home assignment for our workers. Where are things up to for you and what are your plans looking forward? Yeah, we have been back for quite a long time now. We came back in 2019 because my father was unwell. Uh, He passed away in March 2020, and then we were able to help my mum move house and set her up in a place that works well for her. Uh, And we were all set to head back to East Asia in January 2021, um, but for the small matter of the pandemic. Uh, So... For much of this last year, we we thought that we were some months away from getting back to East Asia, but then as time went on, it became increasingly clear that we weren't going to get back there because of um, that nation's approach to COVID, their COVID zero policy. And so we made the hard decision to uh, commit to life and ministry here in Adelaide for the next two years, still with a view to going back to East Asia in a couple of years' time, but just uh, settling in here, which, which is helpful for us in many ways as a family. Um, We're at a point now where uh, I have a ministry role that I'm going to start here in Adelaide in February. Um, We'll look forward to telling you a bit more about that uh, once the details are worked out sometime in the next few weeks. Now, T, how about you? Well, in the time that we've been here, God's been opening up different doors and opportunities. We've kept having an eye to how to prepare to head back to East Asia. So I have finished my grad dip in psychology and am enrolled to do honours in the coming year. I've also been working with a small foundation that that works with vulnerable um, families and hoping to continue that and maybe do a bit of work as well um, for the next couple of years. Mainly we're looking to be used by God, to be faithful, uh, to keep preparing for heading back to East Asia. Our home is still there, both in our hearts and in reality. Our stuff is still there. Most of our clothes are there, the boys' toys, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, So we very much are still planning to head back to East Asia. And everything we're doing while we're here is is both seeking to be faithful and useful um, in this place, but also to be ready to return. Now, this has been quite a journey for you and the family. Can you tell us a bit about what it's been like, including for the boys? Yeah, it has been a real journey and we're five individual people, so it's looked quite different for each of us. I think we sort of hark back a bit to our St Andrew's Hall days and just having a good perspective on really seeing mission as being us as a family and also as as individuals before God. And so that's helped us to really look to see what each of us needs. Um, we've travelled at different paces. We've had different grieving processes. Uh, we've had different ways of looking to the future and what that means. Uh, uh, The littlest one has been most excited about heading home because he's got a promised guinea pig when we get there. Um, So that's been devastating to deal with that he won't get that for another two years. Uh, But on the whole, you know, he's really thrived at school. He's made lots of friends. He's doing well. And I think for him, it's it's going to be a good thing to just have some stability um, here in an English-speaking environment. Um, For the middle one, he is an introvert and so, you know, having only one classmate in East Asia um, can be a bit trying, even though it sounds like that should be good, only one, but it kind of leaves you nowhere to go um, if you, you know, need some downtime or that's not going so smoothly. Uh, So he's loved being here and having a group of friends and he knows how 
hard that can be to develop those relationships. So he's a bit nervous about heading back, but I think the two-year plan for him has given him great relief and a sense of perspective and I've noticed that he's much more positive about heading back. So we're grateful for that because he, you know, he can see I've got time here. Um, there's another CMS kid that will be back next year that he's really looking forward to being at school with. And um, so that's the two-year thing has worked well, that decision for him. And the oldest one, um, he misses home the most. Uh but it's been great to see God um, inspiring us in, in knowing how to help him, but also then hearing him say back to us the things we need to hear. So a good example of that has been, um, you know, we said to him one night, look, you, you are sad and you will be sad and there'll be different days that are harder than others, but at some point you have to decide to not be sad for the next two years because otherwise you're going to get to the end of two years and feel like I wasted that and I wasted that opportunity and I wasn't fully present and I didn't make the most of it. And it's been good to hear him talking to other people about that and for Dee and I to listen in and go, yeah, we actually really need to hear that message too, that we have to choose joy daily um, to focus on what God has for us here and, and the fact that we you know, he really is bringing lots of good things into alignment. And so, and we need to just trust him in that and also trust those we love um, and long to, to be serving with overseas. Um, trust that he's got them too and still making his purposes come about. You really do have a heart for East Asia and you are very much oriented towards the future 2024 and beyond. Surely you must be thinking, what, is, what do things look like for the work over there, the work while you're not there? Uh, what does this mean for your work in East Asia now and looking forward into the future? It is an interesting thing to ponder what ministry in East Asia is going to look like into the future. Um, our expatriate colleagues over there at the moment are saying that they are sensing an increase um, uh, sense of um, tension with local people because of what's being portrayed in the media to do with COVID um, and just generally. So there's an increased um, negativity towards foreigners that wasn't there certainly towards us uh, in recent years. So that will be interesting to see how that plays out going into the future. Uh, and COVID has just meant that ministry has been much more difficult than it usually um, has been in the, in the country um, in years gone by. Um, churches, for example, have gone online, but now online ministries are being much more closely monitored and there's a question mark about what's going to be possible there. So that's a concern for churches. Um, also, uh, just some words from a colleague of ours. Uh, he, he wrote this just recently. He says, most expatriates still ministering from within the nation would report that they are doing less than they were four or five years ago and yet most would also likely report on a profound deepening in many of their local discipling relationships. Um, so I think that probably speaks something to what ministry will look like in the longer term, perhaps. Yeah, I think, I mean, our work has really had to pivot in an extreme way. Uh, the doors to the orphanage have been shut, although Mercy's been able to visit a number of times. Um, doors to the hospital have been shut, doors to preschools have been shut. There's just a lot less traffic being allowed in and out of different places. But what that has meant is that people have had time um, to pray and to reconsider. And for Mercy, as she's started establishing um, the independent non-profit organisation and working out what her team is going to look like and how they're going to do life and ministry, it's actually provided a bit of space um, to do that out of the, the momentum and the, and the frenetic pace uh, that life was going at. So I think God's really, um, you know, spoken into that space and is guiding and directing them with new creativity. And I think the fact that they are staying in that space, um, families with kids with disability, as we know here in Australia, are really... Um, facing the, the, the heavy end of this um, pandemic. And, and so for them to be standing in that space, still offering services, still offering time, still 
uh, putting themselves at risk in working with people um, day in, day out. That's actually testifying um, to people about the, the sincerity of this work, that it's not about the money, that it's not about um, status, it's not about anything else. It's genuinely about sharing God's love and, and showing another pathway um, than abandonment. Um, so I think, yeah, those deepening relationships and, and speaking into that space is a great opportunity for us as we partner in prayer with our colleagues. It's been great to have an insight what it's like to be a CMS supporter um, more more thoroughly. Obviously, we've We've always been praying for our colleagues around the world, but, um, you know, when th this is the only way you can partner in. Um, it's, it is a really profound thing. But I think it does also really grieve our hearts because, you know, we, we know the things that we haven't shared with our colleagues and neighbours in life. Um, for me, when I first went to East Asia, SARS had just finished and I just, I remember not understanding the stories and the experience for people who'd been through SARS. And so we, we sense that too, that we've missed something that's defining as a culture. It's, it's great to be able to understand our Australian family and friends um, because we've shared in this journey here, um, but we're very aware that we've missed, missed that there. So we be asking for prayer, um, yeah, just that God will, will mend that gap and that in some way he, as he does with everything else, be able to use it for his glory. Well, thank you, guys. I really appreciate that. I understand that over the next two years, you're going to keep your prayer supporters in the loop a little bit about what's going on for you, and they will uh, no doubt be keen to continue to pray for you. Uh, we're very thankful for the ministry you have done, and I'm really hoping that uh, the Lord does open the door as we, as we plan. Yeah, we certainly will be over the next couple of years. Uh, and we do just want to really sincerely say uh, thank you um, to you and to everyone in CMS. Uh, we have been very well looked after by CMS uh, and all of the supporters for the last 10 years or more and longer um, for tea here. Um, uh, we're just very thankful to God and we thankful for the partnership and we look forward to that continuing into the future. Thank you, DNT. The third and final part of our episode is a brief look at what life looks like for the Christians in different parts of the world. As we discussed in the panel discussion on vulnerable mission, we don't do mission in order to make the rest of the world look like us. We want to take an interest in what life looks like for them. Our curiosity is an expression of our love. What is life like for the church in the parts of the world where our workers serve? Francis Cook is currently in Australia on home assignment, but heading back to Santiago, Chile in a few months. Francis has been serving on the teaching staff of the Centre for Pastoral Studies, or CEP, and has been in South America for over 30 years. Let's chat with her. Francis, what is it like to go to church in Chile? Like a lot of things in Chile, it depends very much who you are, where you live, uh, what your socioeconomic situation is. Um, the uh, most popular churches amongst the, the poor, um, poor to sort of lower middle classes on the whole, are the Pentecostal churches. But immediately I need to say that they, whatever picture you've got of Pentecostal churches in your mind in Australia, it's not the same. Uh, these are homegrown uh, Pentecostals, largely uh, grown out of the Methodist church. Um, so you have things like they practice infant baptism, they sing old Methodist hymns to about 100 guitars and, uh, and this sort of thing. So. I belong to the Anglican Church, and so within the Anglican Church also there's quite a variety, in, and that also is, um, tends to reflect socioeconomic, rural or city, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, the church that I belong to, I think a lot of people in churches here in Adelaide would feel very uh, comfortable with. Um, it's an Anglican Church. It's, it's liturgical but in a very free sort of way. Um, and uh, with a strong emphasis on the preaching of the word. Uh, we have communion service normally every other week, uh, sing a lot of songs that some of which would be familiar, but at least the tune would be familiar to people here, but of course they're in Spanish. Um, so, and we put a lot of emphasis on home group Bible studies and so forth in the, in the life of the church. Um, it's not uncommon to somebody, if, for somebody new to come into the church by that route. Uh, they'll go to a Bible study before they'll come to a church often. 
The, the experience is quite varied. Even the time of day, you're more likely to get a service in the morning and the sort of um, you know, more socially upper end of, um, of the city, than, whereas you're probably more likely to get a Sunday evening service um, in some of the poorer areas. All of these things are in flux, you know, they're all, all changing, but that's a kind of general sort of picture. Okay, what about Christian fellowship more generally? What sort of things would be familiar to us and what sort of things would be distinctive? Uh, well, one would hope the gospel would be familiar <laughs> and um, and that obviously is a, you know, as, as, as we know here, that brings people together. The Spirit of God dwells in us and bring, brings people together no matter what sort of um, uh, sort of church you meet in. Um, so, yeah, again, it would depend on what sort of church you go to. But um, the, the church that I'm familiar with, um, uh, a very strong emphasis on on the Word. Or, I mean, when I say a strong emphasis, there's also a strong emphasis on sacrament. Do Christians like to get together in big groups and eat and do hospitality? Where do they connect? Do they play sport together? Do they live near each other? Yes and no to all of those. <laughs> Eating together is obviously it's an important part of Chilean culture, it's an important part of um, family life and so on. But in our church, for example, it's not very often, like a home group, for example, would very rarely meet for a meal. Um, but we'd all have something to, to eat when we meet together. The, the reasons for that are various. One is that people um, get away from work, often very late. You know, they, if we have a Bible study that starts at eight, there are some people that won't be able to be there by that time coming straight from work. Um, means they're hungry, of course, but lunch was the main meal of their day, so they're not really expecting a, a meal as such. And um, But also uh, cost is just, a, there, there aren't many people in Chile that can freely sh throw on a meal for other people without having to really seriously plan it. What about the church more broadly? What are the biggest challenges facing the church in Chile at the moment? Um, probably by far the biggest would be secularisation. Together with that, a, a growing mistrust of church. The, the Roman Catholic Church in Chile had an absolutely massive sexual abuse scandal a couple of years ago. Um, and the Roman Catholic Church, of course, is the biggest church in Chile. Um, and that's flowed on a bit. There, there was one big one in by far the biggest Pentecostal church in Chile too, a di different sort of thing over money largely. Um, so, yeah, but the media certainly enjoyed it. So <laughs> those sorts of things are important. But also Chile is undergoing a time of um, fairly massive um, uh, political change. Um, it's, that's a process that's underway and it remains to be seen just where it all goes. So, yeah, um, and that's obviously affecting people as well. Thank you, Francis, and thank you for listening to this second episode of the Heart of Mission podcast, focusing on vulnerable mission and continuing to think about mission partnership, as well as what life looks like in different parts of the world. Remember, you can sign up to pray for missionaries by just going to our webpage. In the next episode, we're going to tackle that question, should we still be sending missionaries head on? We have another great panel, including Peter Scholl, who works on the team at CMS Australia. Speaking of Peter Scholl, if you're thinking that maybe, just maybe, some kind of overseas mission or mission to the top end of Australia could be for you, he's got a lot of wisdom to share. In each of the next three episodes, I'm going to put some questions to Peter about the opportunities for mission that currently exist and how does someone go about working out where they might fit in world mission. Until then, stay safe and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.